Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, this is a special re-release of an episode we released in January, Denny Lane, Songs and Stories. We found out from following Denny on Facebook that he's been through a lot with his health lately, and it's led to medical costs in his treatment as he's been dealing with the effects of long COVID, I think is what I saw his wife put in there. With that in mind, we thought we'd run this episode, which is just a great chat with a great guy, and post up the links to the GoFundMe page so you can help out in Denny's time of need. A great artist, a Hall of Famer, a member of the Moody Blues, Wings, and so much more. We're looking for you to lend a helping hand to Denny in his time of need. Thank you for your support. Remember, every dollar helps Denny Lane. So what do you say we jump right into it? I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And it's always fun, Marcus, when we get to talk to a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even though, you know, we don't always give them the highest grades, right? It is always wonderful talking with somebody of that caliber of a musician or that high of a level of a musician because we know that we're going to learn something. And somebody like Denny Lane, who has done so much over his life always has great stories to share and those stories will include some learning as well so it's going to be a blast talking to denny guests like him always surprise us in one small or large way when we get to talking here on the imbalance history of rock and roll we want to thank our sponsors as always for supporting this podcast coming up on 40 years how did we get here man how did we get here i know and we are so happy, thrilled, actually, if you want to know the truth, Denny, to have Denny Lane on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, Ray and Marcus, with a million questions, but we'll be brief. <laughs> <laughs> you better be. Hey, first off, I got to tell you, you haven't been on uh, our podcast before. Uh, I want to congratulate you and everyone involved in the effort in getting the Moody Blues into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, and yeah. It was way overdue, Denny, and your role in the band, getting them on track as the original progressive band I viewed the Moody Blues as. Your role in all that yeah. and how hard it was, how much the fans had to push for it. Uh, I'm oh, so yeah. happy that it finally happened. Not only that, but at first I wasn't included, so that's the story. But you were there, right? Eventually. Is that old history kind of catching up to the modern times, or was somebody just being foolish? <laughs> I don't know what it was. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, I mean, I'm just saying, if that's what you want to talk about first, I can no. talk about it. But, uh, oh, sure. That's the kind of stuff that people don't really understand. And yeah. I guess it's a little sensitive for us as yeah. fans of yours to ask about it. But yeah, how'd that um, all get worked out and what was going on? Well, originally, you know, I don't get myself too involved in this, but, um, you know, the, the details of how things come together. But I know for a fact that, um, you know, we were due to go in because of Go Now, and Go Now was the only number one the Moody's ever had. We've already said... Since you gotta go, oh, you better go now. 
So I was told that that was the, the stipulation. You had to have a number one. And that's you. Yeah. So originally I wasn't invited. So I had a, a couple of friends of mine, like in the business, uh, who complained on my behalf. And I won't go into the names, but they're pretty big names. And um, eventually I got the call to say, oh, yes, we want you to come along to, to be inducted. So I didn't say anything. I just went and did it. But originally, I did ask Ray Thomas, actually, months before, and he passed away shortly before this anyway. He said, oh, no, we weren't anything to do with that. Because I was told that maybe it was the band's decision as to who goes, you know. Mm. So I thought, well, I don't care anyway. But um, eventually, he said, no, it wasn't our decision. So eventually, they did call me to, to get me to go. So I just went along with it. You know. Did it piss you off at all that by the time they got around to doing it, Ray wasn't here to be part of it? It upset, of course, and uh, and that would have been, yeah. I mean, we've stayed in touch with his wife and everything, so, mm -hmm. you know, we're pretty close to them. So, yeah, it was very upsetting, and, um, of course, she came and uh, everybody felt bad for her, but she came, and so did all the other people, and I enjoyed it, actually. It was nice... I'd met Justin before, I'd even done a TV show with him before. John Lodge I didn't really know, even though I know he worked with Ray Thomas in Birmingham originally in his band. And he was a, a first choice for the for the bass player for the Moody Blues, but he, he was at college and whatever, and didn't want to move down to London. So that was the answer there. So when I left, of course, he came in, but I didn't really know John. So I got to know him a little bit, and he was That's a cool. nice guy, you know. Real nice guy. And then Justin was great. It was nice. I enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed the, the trip. Excellent. Over this long-storied Hall of Fame rock and roll life that you have lived, you have shared the stage with so many musicians in like crazy numbers of great musicians. Is there anybody that you did not get to share the stage with that you had always wanted to? No. Not really, because I don't look at it like I, I want to share stages with people. But by accident or whatever it is, I have, you know, some of my heroes. I mean, Chuck Berry was the first tour we ever did, and that was fantastic. That's when he even used my amplifier, like <laughs> Gibson Titan amplifier. He was famous for that, right? Just yeah. plugging into what was there and going. Man. Oh, whatever, yeah. But we didn't back him up. Saying that... We enjoyed being around these people. So Sonny Voice, Chuck Berry, Don Everly, I enjoyed uh, doing the thing with him at the Albert Hall. Um, you know, the Everly brothers I met uh, prior to another date in Vegas, and they came up with our band and did a little sh song just to promote their show that was coming up the next day. People like that. I didn't choose to be around, but we're just there, you know. So it's it's like you you don't know what's going to happen on the day, do you? You know, that's yeah, the way true. it goes. <laughs> now, we're getting to talk to you today because you're doing dates and uh, for a few weeks in February in the United States. Tell us about the format, what you're doing, what's going on with your tour. What I'm doing is I'm doing my songs that I either wrote, co-wrote, the three different things, the four different things I was involved with, that would have been really not my own band because I never used to do it in them days. But, you know, Wings, Moody Blues, uh, the string band I had, and then solo records that I had out in the 80s. So I'm doing some songs that people don't even know unless they're big fans. I'm also doing some Wings stuff that I was on and co-wrote and, and stuff like that. I, You know, I'm not trying to do a Paul McCartney. Let's get that straight. I'm not trying to be, you know, singing Wings hits that I wasn't really the singer on. But, you know, I'm getting across the fact that me and him used to write together and hang out together and knew him way before I joined Wings. So it's all that story. There's stories involved with the actual writing of songs and what songs mean. And also, I also say to people, if you want to know what, what I'm all about, just 
get to know the lyrics of the songs. That's the kind of stories I'm telling. So it's the songs and stories. I try to keep it as brief as possible so I can get all the songs in. I mean, I've got a couple of hours worth of songs there, see? So that's what it is, and it's just me and a guitar. It's but a I chance it. for fans to get to know you musically and intimately in a nice yeah. setting at the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the venues you're playing. Uh, yeah. There's one, Ramshead, which people know down in Annapolis, but it's pretty yeah. much the city winery tour with New York and Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, and Chicago. And mm. what we're going to do is put links to your tour dates Okay. all of our stuff for our uh, episode with your visit here on the imbalance history so we'll get it all covered so people know where to go and see you when you're in town well that's it that's that's what i'm doing and i i've actually done it before before the pandemic i started doing this for about well, on and off a few, few months i dropped the band thing and and just went completely you know solo and uh enjoyed it so much that that's why i've started to do it again I did a tour actually, a Beatles sort of based tour with Todd Rundgren and um, Christopher Cross and that. But that really wasn't my tour. I was just a guest on that tour. As far as me doing my own shows, I hadn't really worked for, since the pandemic. So, you know, the fact that I'm out there doing it again now, and, you know, I tried one out the other night, and it went down really well. So I managed to get everything in there, and it was a good night, you know. It's, it's a sort of a tester, and people like it. You know, they just, as you say, it's, it's more of an intimate thing, and it's fun for me. I can, I can move it around if I want to. During the pandemic, which you mentioned, how did you get through the day? How did you manage to get through and uh, keep music happening in your day? You know, I live out in the country in Florida so I mean I, I kind of cut myself off you know uh -huh. well, I was making writing songs and recording ideas and stuff like that you know I spoke to Paul about this was all about the vaccine situation and at the time I didn't believe in it and he said oh you should get it man it's the only way you're going to get any work which is true and so I did and then um, that's when I started working then to do that too you know but really, I kept myself to myself because on that tour, we all caught a, a short version of COVID. And I had a pretty bad time of it, like not at first, but then after a while. And so, you know, I was very wary about going out and being around anybody mm -hmm. at the time. So that's the way it's been. And now I'm going out to do it. You know, I'm not so worried about it. I've kind of been through the worst part of that. But uh, a lot of my friends had a bad time with that, with that COVID thing. Uh, beat people up pretty uh, hard. You talked about putting together a couple hours worth of music for this upcoming tour. Was putting no. that playlist together difficult, or did you really have an idea in no. mind when you set the stories up? Well, it's it's always the songs that I like best. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, there's, there's a few more moody songs I could have included. There's a few more wing things I didn't want to do because I, I didn't sing <laughs> the lead on silly love songs and <laughs> listen to what the man said you know what i mean let him in i didn't do that but, yeah, I'll but just you like, were there man you were yeah. there <laughs> yeah but i can't sit there and sing them songs i i can sit there and, and play songs i can i can play my parts i can add them to whatever i'm doing as a sort of an intro or something but usually you know i do the songs that i like doing the songs i actually like to play and, and these are usually, you know, my songs. I mean, I, I'll do stuff like No Words and, and Deliver Your Children, things off the albums, yeah, because I, I wrote them or co-wrote them.
As they say, I'm not like a hit machine, you know. It's like, that's not what the show's all about. So the songs that I'm doing, I actually like of my own songs. And that I've learned over the, the years just by practicing. I mean, like, you know, you're sitting at home and you want to practice a bit. And then you'll sing a song that you know a little bit. Then eventually you get to know the song really well. So these are the songs that I put in the set, the songs that I know the, the best. Let's put it that way. This misbelieving is a mixed up mess. You say you're leaving if I don't compare. We get along so bad, so I suggest you just I want to jump back for a second to the time after you had left the Moody Blues to the Electric String Band and how you feel now about its role in maybe having inspired the Electric Light Orchestra. Uh, which came along after that. I guess the guys were in the move when you were in the Moody's, or that was or th- that was after the, you left the Moody's. That was about that time. And I just wondered if the electric string band had any role in inspiring them to do what they did. I don't know. I would imagine so. But at the same time, you know, we were all influenced by the George Martin connection to the Beatles, you know. That was the string thing, right? Uh, or the orchestral thing. Now, when I did my Say It Don't Mind song, John Paul Jones was the, was the string arranger on that. He, oh, wow. Yeah, well, he's a session guy, but he played bass, but he also wrote string parts. I realize that I've been in your eyes some kind of fool. Well, no, it was a trio, a rock trio, with four string players, to, uh, all from the Royal Academy of Music. And they weren't that available because they were touring the world a lot of the time. So that was a bit restrictive. But at the same time, I did go and do, you know, for about a year, I did some sort of sets. I played behind Jimi Hendrix once, mm-hmm. I mean, on the same show. He even gave me a compliment. Because well, that's it was, cool. Uh, it was the first time that I think, that I know of, that anybody had done that live. You know, see what I mean? I mean, it was the first time people were using pickups on their violins and their cellos. I mean, these guys had no clue about that. So it was a learning process. It worked. All the Beatles were in the audience and and Peter Asher is still a friend of mine. All in the audience went, yeah, you know, so I did that. Bev Bevan for me, Ella, was in our original band, The Diplomats in Birmingham. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he he was the guy, John Bonham used to come and watch us because of him when he was a kid, he used to come and watch us up in that that area. So anyway, um, Bev, of course, when we had a hit, we go now, he was sitting at home all upset because he didn't stay in the band. Because I said, anybody who wants to stay in these bands got to move to London eventually because it's where the business is. So that's all started up. And I actually did get together with a few people up there at one point, um, to sort of do something like that. And it was it was based around a lot of people from Birmingham. It was pre-ELO, but some of the guys ended up in ELO. Anyway, I walked away from that eventually. I thought, ah, oh, no, it was not quite right for me. That's when I started the Electric String Band. But, you know, like I say, I wrote that song, Say You Don't Mind, purely because of that. That um, it was an audition actually. I wanted to get a drummer and a bass player, so I wrote that song and got the people to come in and play it with me, and that's how I got the members in the band. So that's the way that went. Something I always wanted to do, I was involved in the folk scene at the time, I was doing some solo ish stuff. And that led to that, and then and then I met a lot of people in the folk world, like Paul Simon, you know. So I was a part of that that British folk scene. Like I say, it developed into that. But then when they went on tour, I was out of work for a bit. Then <laughs> Ginger Baker and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I saw you did work with Ginger Baker. What was that yeah. like? Well, I know Ginger again since the Chuck Berry tour. Him and okay. Jack were in the band. 
that opened on that tour. So I knew him from then. I was down at uh, Traffic's Cottage once and with, with uh, Trevor Burton from The Move, actually. We were hanging out together and stuff. So went down there, it was Steve Woodward's birthday and Ginger and Eric were there and, and uh, I sat and played with them a little bit. So anyway, eventually Ginger came to one of our parties and he asked me if I wanted to join, join him in this new idea he had, which was the Air Force. So I did but, you know, it was kind of, and and Trevor and Alan White got involved in that. And, and it was just a something to do, really. And I was it was asking, such a fluid time in music. You guys mm-hmm. had stuff going on all around you. Well, like, almost like swimming in a big stream of amazing yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff. That's right. Well, that's why people ended up playing other people's records or joining other bands, you know. Ronnie Wood is a good example of that. He moved around all the way, you know, different bands and wherever. But um, because you could, you were friends with these people. It's like Eric Burden basically found Justin Hayward for the Moody Blues just by accident because he was looking for people. We did an episode about the Moody Blues on the podcast and we talked about the tape and everything. Just, you know, uh, it was just a local thing back then, right? It wasn't really much more than an extension of, hey, I know a guy, right? Well, it was all about that. We, we all met in London, a lot of the bands, or on the road. Right. I mean, we used to double with people like the Yardbirds at Marquee Club, so, I mean, got to know them, you see. It's like that's the way it was. It was friendly competition, but at the same time, you know, you always ended up in a club somewhere, you know, <laughs> watching some American band that's just come over to be noticed. It was it was a society of, of, of out-of-towners, really, that came to London mainly because of the business and because it was really the roots place, you know. It was like the roots of all the blues-type bands, of influence bands. So, and a crossroads for everybody to yeah. connect there, you know. Correct, that was it. In the middle of all this, how do you connect with Paul and Linda and start working on Wings? Well, that's because I knew Paul. Simple as that. And um, we did the Beatles tour, second tour. I don't know, but they, they, we, we got friendly with them in Birmingham, actually. But when Bev was in the band, we did a double with them, open for them in Birmingham. You know, met them, went in the dressing room, met them. And then kind of, in London, we all met up in a club. We were all very, very new to town, and so were they. And so, hey, come on over. We sat with them for a couple of hours, and then eventually, you know, they, they lived not far from us. George was closer than anybody. Mm. Got to know them, go to the houses and whatever. And then got to know them through that and then eventually went to one of the Sergeant Pepper things and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of hung out with them. Went to see bands, like I said, you know. And so they would play us their acetates, we would play, us, play them our stuff, stuff like that. So because I knew them, Paul was looking for somebody to work with, who he knew. He didn't want to be with someone who was like intimidated or, you know. Right. Yeah. Wow, Paul McCartney, and he knew that was going to happen with me. <laughs> that would have been me. That would have been me, though. Yeah, but you know, that don't happen in the business. <laughs> yeah. Not like that. You know, we're, as far as we're concerned, we're all the same. And and the fame doesn't, you know, it's for other people. It's not for us. It's like we're all part of that world, you know. Yeah. I mean, we did enough years not being famous, you know, to yeah. not let fame get to you like that. We found a good spot to take a quick break. We will again shortly resume our conversation with Denny Lane, and it is only going to get better. More from the imbalanced history of rock and roll next. The fall is here, and Crooked Eye is rocking in the heart of Hatboro. The Crooked Eye band will be there every second Saturday of the month. If you follow them on Facebook, you can find out what is happening at Crooked Eye and, of course, their amazing selection of beers. The brews are always delicious and experimental in many cases. Check out the board on their Facebook account. They always put a fresh picture of the board up there. And something happened recently. We've been talking about Salty Vets Barbecue, which is available on certain nights at uh, the brewery. Matt posted about uh, an incredible experience they had where they were really like pushing hard and uh, orders were overwhelming and ended up in recent weeks, like two weeks before we record this, had their best day ever at Salty Vets Barbecue, selling great barbecue to people. 
and working hard doing it. It's good stuff. And it's all part of the energy there, Crooked Eye, where you go, you make new friends, you have a good time, and whatever you want, whether it's the tasty brews that come from the back room there at the brewery, uh, craft cocktails, they've got wine and cider, and, of course, that Salty Vets barbecue. Always a good time to be had when you head down to Hapro and make a Crooked Eye. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Thanks to our sponsors, Ray and Marcus, back with Denny Lane on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. When you were writing and recording Band on the Run, what were some of your fondest memories from that time about the crafting of the songs? And did you all bring these songs or parts of these songs in, put them together? Well, that's a long, different, few answers to that question. But the fact is, we... So I'm told, I don't even remember half of it. We reversed a lot of that album with a band. you know the story which most people do so I don't go into it too too much because I don't like repeating everything that people already know but fact is that that band didn't turn up or two of the members didn't turn up right it was just the three of you yeah so we because of that we Good had, thing Paul could play drums a bit eh yeah sure well I can too oh, dear. yeah because we make all our own demos we have to learn how to do all that stuff you know, keyboards, guitar, drums, bass, <laughs> whatever, you know. Yeah, we ended up doing that. And because of, we already knew the songs structurally, if you like, and they were all 99.9 piece songs. So I wasn't involved in the writing of that, apart from No Words, which I put in. That were his songs. He knew them. And I kind of knew them. So we just sat down with guitar and drums and put down those backing tracks in Africa in a studio that didn't have the latest, shall we say, equipment. What was it like to be in the middle of that? It was a studio with old equipment in it. That was the first thing. And then the other thing was that Ginger Bake had a studio out there. That was one of the attractions for me. I thought, well, he must know all the people out there, which he did. Went around, did a little overdub with him in his studio. But we were in an EMI studio setting, so we did the album there. And we got to know fellow Ransom Cootie in Africa 17, all those people that were the big names out there in Lagos. 
so we uh, we kind of hung out and parted with them. It was great, you know. We learned we learned about Africa music, all that stuff. We already wanted to go somewhere where we liked the music, you know. You know what I mean? Cool. So that would be one of the choices, and that's why we ended up going there. Picked it out on a map, you know. What's so your that, best memory of that? Your big takeaway? Well, I mean, there's loads. I mean, you know, you know, he got busted. I mean, you know, you know, there's like. Well, he nearly got busted with um, stuff and the tapes stolen in Lagos, right? Yeah, you say? yeah, I didn't know that. But other than that, it was pretty smooth sailing, you know. Great album, in some ways, yeah. But again, you know, we we did mo- we did the rest of it back in London. You know, we did the most of the backing tracks there, but mm-hmm. most, all the rest of it we had to do in London because we didn't they didn't have the real equipment for it. So you know, it was not up to date enough. But it was great for us because it was like doing a home album. It had that feel to it. It was relaxed. Thanks for being relaxed yeah. and, and telling us all these great <laughs> yeah, stories, these stories about are amazing in, in rock and roll. Yeah. Our guest is Denny Lane on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. He's going on tour, and we've got the dates linked up on all the episodes. So wherever you're getting this episode and this interview, Uh, You can just click on a link inside there and get right to the date so you can get your tickets to see the man coming to hang and play for a limited engagement for now, at least, right? Well, yeah, I suppose so. But, I mean, I don't have any plans to do anything else except this this year. So we'll we'll see how it goes. I'm enjoying it. That's really what it's all about, the beginning and the end. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what it's all about. You're right. In 1982, you worked with Paul McCartney on the Tug of War album. Were you at Air Montserrat recording on the island? And what were your takeaways and experiences there? Because we've seen the documentary, read a book about it, and were what was wondering if there was, you know, what your experiences were and how beautiful that island was from your perspective. Well, first of all, it was George Martin and all those people, and Jeff Emmerich that set it all up, and, and John Burgess, who I knew too, for me and mine. So we felt pretty much at home there. You know, it was just a, a Caribbean version of, of Air Studios, really. So, but the fact that all those people came in, like, you know, Ringo came in, and, um, you know, all those great people came in, Stevie Wonder and stuff. Yeah, there's a few memories there, but generally speaking, it wasn't looked upon as like being a Winston. It was just us wanting to play with people we liked, or Paul mainly. But, um, you know, so that was it. We just invited people over to do it, and good little jams with Stevie, you know, and Ringo came in, you know, and I knew him anyway, so it was pretty great. And Carl Perkins was the sweetest guy ever, you know. So these are people that you you always admired, you know. So to just be around them was inspiring, to say the least. But you know what? They learned a lot from us too, and I found this out from from uh, well to go off the go off the subject a little bit. But Taj Mahal, I was playing him something, and he says, "Oh yeah, sounds like it. You know, you still got that sound." I says, "What do you mean?" He says, "Yeah, that British sound. We used to try and copy that. <laughs> <laughs> We're the ones copying you." But anyway, yeah, that's that's kind of what it was like. You bounce off each other in that respect, you know, and you learn a lot by working with these people. It's just the way they are. And uh, you realize that you're very much like them too. We've talked about a number of different personalities and stuff. You mentioned Taj Mahal, who either inside or outside of music is the coolest cat you ever met. Oh God, I wouldn't want to take that, make that decision. (laughs) Because there's there's a lot of people that you, you know, it's like they're all into different things. And like, as I say, Don Everly would be amongst mm. them, you know, and Paul, obviously, or all the Beatles, because they were, you know, it's just, uh, we were all the Beatles. <laughs> well, yeah, but we didn't think of them as the Beatles. It was just a bunch of guys. If we didn't like them, we wouldn't have hung out with them. 
Yeah, but you felt that way because you were in the Moody's, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right, but we didn't think of ourselves as being big time either. It just wasn't like that. We thought, well, you're only as good as your last record. What are we going to do now? You know, it's, that's what was going on. Yeah. We weren't part of that big machine of, like, you know, fame. It was not like that. When you look back, it was, but when you when you live in it, it's not like that at all. It's just it's a hard grind trying to stay there, you know. So you spend all your life getting there, and then you suddenly you, you run out of material. <laughs> you know? Well, you know there there are many ways, and many artists who have stories of inventing and reinventing and reinventing themselves through the decades. And uh, the real thing that people sometimes ask themselves is okay, I'm going out to do this. Why? And you've done so many amazing things in your career. Marcus was asking you about a couple of them earlier. But the fact of the matter is your motivation here seems purely to get out, play some of your songs, the songs that you love, for the fans who are most loyal to you. That's for sure. In that setting, it's going to be tough to get a ticket if you're not quick. That's really it. But, you know, the other thing on on a funny note is that a lot of people – don't even know I was in the Moody Blues, <laughs> especially <laughs> hardcore Moody Blues fans from you know the second Mo- Moody Blues. Right. So they don't even know that I was in. Some of them resent that I was in it. What? That's unbelievable. Yeah, they don't no. get it. So it's like I like to go out and say you know play songs that that I was part of and and, uh, and say this is where it all started. You know. Justin and John didn't come in and change the Moody Blues. They, they came in with the songs and they came with a new lease of life. But we were doing all that sort of stuff before. You know, we had that sound, we had that kind of style, if you like, um, before they even came along. And I'm, I'm getting that across more to people now. But, but even so, you know, my influence is there and it's the same with Wings, you know. You, you automatically are adding something to something that you don't even know you are but but that's right it's always there you know so it's part of the of the, the growth of something so i enjoyed that from that point of view I read an interview you did a while back where you mentioned that Gypsy Jazz Guitar is dear to your heart. People like Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli. When did you first hear Gypsy Jazz Guitar and what drew you into it? I was at school when I first got a guitar. It was a cheap little goose guitar. And I took it to school once and I was like, I don't know how it came about, but I was kind of in a you know in the class playing guitars and after after class and some kid come up to me from another form we call them forms and said my brother's a jazz guitarist i said good does he know how to tune a guitar because mine just tuning the way i feel like it you know <laughs> oh yeah so he told me then i looked into some of that music a little bit mind you i was brought up in a lot of authentic, you know, indigenous style music as a kid because my family were into all that. My old oh, man I didn't even, know that. Yeah. My, my old man even had some gypsy roots. There was um, my sisters, they had all their style of music and it was very, very varied from classical to, to everything, you know, else. And so I was already influenced by it. And, and of course, during the war, before I was born, they all had a piano in the house. Everybody did. And everybody entertained themselves. So you always, you know, if you come from Birmingham, you can bet everybody had a piano. So anyway, I started to learn all that stuff, like the sort of music that Django plays, which is basically standard jazz pop songs, you know, like Bill Bailey and... Uh, all that stuff, you know, and you know, and they just jazz that up, just like everybody jazzes all other kinds of music up. So anyway, I got into that a little bit then, um, and then left it alone. But then when I went to live in Spain, I took up flamenco guitar. I had a friend who taught me a few licks on the flamenco guitar. Hanging out with the gypsies, learned a lot about that. 
and then only recently in the last couple of years got back into the gypsy jazz thing you know because i i knew a little bit about it and i was using it to practice you know it's very good practice to practice mm-hmm. all that stuff but you have to learn their thing it's like learning the blues certain notes you can and can't play it's the same thing and you have to learn all them rhythms and everything else which you weren't brought up on but you're an outsider looking in so i was pretty interested in doing that with a lot of different styles of music and gypsy jazz was the obvious one because it's the one i started with that and folk music everything comes full circle hey denny yeah yeah Denny Lane, our guest on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll podcast. It's just so good to talk to you. And I, as a a fan of the Moody Blues, big time, I knew uh, Go Now. You know, when you're a a young kid and you're absorbing rock and roll without the internet, right? (laughs) All of a sudden, I put it all together and I'm like, holy shit, man. You know, this is the guy, you know? We never had any way of finding things out except, you know, we, we, we used to get records somehow from somewhere mm-hmm. you know what i mean and you put them in your set and everybody would try and steal those records off you so they could do it <laughs> That's what they could you couldn't go on the internet and get anything it wasn't there right, right. So it was just fun <laughs> yeah it was part of the fun of the hunt right? it, the records and everything else yeah. Now everybody knows everything. They, they know too much. They don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a True. rocket scientist, right, Danny? <laughs> <laughs> I am now as well. <laughs> it's called Brian May. Maybe he could be like the lead guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He's the guy. Do you remember the first record you bought with your own money or the first record you were gifted as a child? Uh, No, I don't, to be honest. Again, we I would go around somebody's house, they'd be playing your records and say, well, what's that record? And they'd have a blank sticker over the front of it so you couldn't know, you wouldn't know what song it was. And they'd just play it to you. So, can I borrow that? No. You know, they wouldn't let you. It's like everybody would scour the world and find some obscure record. So I never really went, I think, I don't know. I don't even know if I bought that will be the day, but that would be one of the first rock and roll records I've ever heard. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye. Yes, that'll be the day when you make me cry. You say you're gonna leave, you know it's a lie. Cause that'll be the day when I die. Well, you give me all your loving and your eternal loving, all your hugs and kisses and your money to a hell. that I was kind of more attracted to because although Elvis I thought was great but Buddy Holly being a singer-songwriter I kind of picked up on that. I might have bought it, but I don't remember if I did. Because I, I don't remember buying any records. I don't know. People would lend them to you eventually, but but I don't remember. I was never really a record buyer, you know, at all. So, I know we don't have uh, forever to talk to you today, but sometime if we could have you back, I'd love to just talk about your love of Buddy Holly. He's one of our favorite subjects. Well, I did a, an album before. I know, I know. I, so, I mean, that's why. It's so easy to fall in love. It's so easy to fall in love. People tell me love's rules. So here I go, making love of the rules. It seems so easy, it seems so easy, it seems so easy, it seems so easy, it Um, I was going to do it with all, all people, American Ray, what was his name, going to be the producer. Uh, and that didn't work out because of the timing situation. But it, we ended up doing it. Paul ended up doing all the back yeah. up in Scotland and we did it that way. But yeah, it was because of, of uh, our love for Buddy Holly that um, I think everybody who started in the rock and roll game in England was influenced by Buddy Holly. Everybody. 
Was he being played on the radio, the yeah. BBC? It was the American Forces Network. They had all the best music. It was Radio Luxembourg, actually. Welcome to the show. Here we go again. Radio Luxembourg. Yeah, he's finished. Hey, that's good stuff, huh? Bit of summer gold for you now on the Barry Oldest Show. A blast back to the past. The Doobie Brothers, long train running. Right, a lot of people have talked about that to us. It went from that to obviously Radio Caroline and being out of the three mile limit. That was the only way they could do it. But did you ever go out there and go on the boat? I did go on that boat. What was that like? It was surrounded by Heineken bottles. That's all right. (laughs) (laughs) It really was. Did you give them help emptying them then? (laughs) No. No. I just remember that being surrounded by them. I went out there with a singer called Julie Grant, who I know quite well to this day, because she was a friend of the Moody's at the time, because we used to do a lot of TV and stuff with those people. And I went out there, she was promoting her song, and I was promoting mine. And I always remember, look, look at this, like green bottles everywhere. But anyway, that's <laughs> the point. Piracy. That's what's happening here with the connivance of almost every teenager in Southeast England at any rate. We're bound for Radio Caroline, the pirate ship that for over a year has given pop music to something like 20 million listeners, as their advertising sales staff claim. Yeah, so Radio Luxembourg played all the, the cool stuff that was meant for the, the American forces. And so that's where we picked up on a lot of it. But we couldn't get hold of a lot of those records. So just to kind of what you didn't know you made up <laughs> you know, lyrics and stuff. So. Right, you fill in the gaps, right? If you yeah, had to, <laughs> yeah. Then you find out years later you've been singing the wrong lyrics, but never mind. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, rock and roll, man. That's rock and roll. I'm so glad you're coming out to play on this tour in February. Get the dates, folks. At our website, imbalancehistory.com, you can also get links to the shows near you. Uh, on uh, the episode where we're talking with Denny Lane here on the podcast. Okay. Any parting words for everybody before uh, we, we let you go? Well, I'm just looking forward to seeing people who, who don't know the music that much. I mean, obviously, I'm looking forward to seeing people who do know the music, but the ones that don't know it, if they go away happy, then I've done you know a good job. That's, that's the main thing, because the, the song should speak for themselves, you know, not your fame or what they expect you to do. It's just, uh, it's just that's one of those things. I'm trying to push myself as a singer-songwriter more than anything now. You know? So it goes. <laughs> and we'll leave it there, and thank you, Denny uh, Lane, on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Thank you. See you soon. Cheers, guys. Well, Marcus, all I'm going to say is I hope we can add Denny Lane to the list of people who come on the podcast regularly to be guests because it was so much fun to have him with us. It was a blast, and he shared so many cool stories, which means he has more stories to share about his 50-plus years doing this rock and roll thing. Holy Closing cow. Closing in on 60, dude. It's unbelievable. And and you know, when he had those moments where he seemed to feel comfortable, that's when the good stuff comes out. So hopefully we'll have a chance to talk to him when he's not promoting a tour or something and really dig into the wing stuff and do more on that and his role as one of the founders of the Moody Blues. So much fun. And we got it straight on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction too. I love stuff like that. Oh, Yeah. And if you're in the mood to see concerts, go check Denny Lane out. He's got a bunch of dates coming up, city wineries, as well as a few other venues. And we'll have those links posted on our website, imbalancedhistory.com. If you're on an app listening right now, just click through to the information part, and there'll be a link there too. So do that and be in touch through imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Twitter shortened because of characters at Imbalanced Histo. I think if they've binge listened through or followed along through all the years now, I think they probably figured out that we're never getting the RY. <laughs> You'd think with some of the changes that happened, we'd get that RY. But... Come on, must give us the two characters. <laughs> you... 
dick. I'll tell you what, man. We learned a lot. We had some fun talking with Denny. So much fun and so many great stories. It's the stories that get me too, Marcus. You know, Marcus, it was as good as I remember doing it. You know, some interviews you just go, wow, that was great. And hearing it again this week reminded me how much fun we had talking with Denny Lane. Absolutely. And I really hope that he recovers and we get another chance to hear some stories and speak with Denny Lane again. An amazing man with some great stories and a great contributor to the history of rock and roll. Go to the copy in the episode wherever you found this and click on the GoFundMe link and do what you can to help Denny Lane. Definitely a friend of the podcast here. And thanks for listening, as always, to the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.